Let me encourage you to open your Bibles, and we're going to be returning back to Acts chapter 27. Uh, we're going to begin reading in verse 18. So if you'll find your way to Acts 27, uh, we are in the middle of a rather dramatic account of a trip that Paul is making, the Apostle Paul. Uh, he is on his way to Rome, and he is uh, he's arrested. He's been through a number of trials, and uh, so now it's really getting to the point where this trip is extremely difficult, and there's, his life is threatened along with everyone else on the ship. Verse 18, um, we've already looked at this several times, but we're going to move to the latter part of the text. The next day, as we were being violently storm-tossed, they began to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. And since neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small storm was assailing us, from then on, all hope of our being saved was gradually abandoned. If you are able to highlight that verse or to somehow underline that verse, that's obviously very significant in terms of how bad things are in this storm. And when they had gone a long time without food, then Paul stood up in their midst and said, Men, you ought to have followed my advice and not to have set sail from Crete and incurred this damage and loss. And yet now I urge you to keep up your courage, for there shall be no loss of life among you, but only the ship. For this very night an angel of God, to whom I belong and whom I serve, stood before me, saying, Don't be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. Therefore, keep up your courage, men, for I believe God, and it will turn out exactly, I believe God, that it will turn out exactly as I have been told. And we must run aground on a certain island. But when the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven about in the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors began to surmise that they were approaching some land, and they took some soundings, and they found it to be 20 fathoms. A little farther, they took another sounding and found it to be 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run aground somewhere on the rocks, they cast four anchors from the stern and wished for daybreak. And as the sailors were trying to escape from the ship and had let down the ship's boat into the sea, on the, pretense, on the pretense of intending to lay out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and to the soldiers, Unless these men remain in the ship, you yourselves cannot be saved. And then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it fall away. And until the day was about to dawn, Paul was encouraging them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have been constantly watching and going without eating, having taken nothing. Therefore, I encourage you to take some food, for this is your preservation. For not a hair from, your head, from the head of any of you shall perish. And having said this, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of all, and he broke it and began to eat. And all of them were encouraged, and they themselves also took food. And all of us in the ship were 276 persons. And when they had eaten enough, they began to lighten the ship by throwing out the wheat into the sea. And when day came, they could not recognize the land, but they did observe a certain bay with a beach, and they resolved to drive the ship into, onto it if they could. 
And casting off the anchors, they left them in the sea, while at the same time they were loosening the ropes of the rudders and hoisting the foresail to the wind. They were heading for the beach. But striking a reef where two seas met, they ran the vessel aground, and the prow stuck fast and remained immovable, but the stern began to be broken up by the force of the waves. And the soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, that none of them should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wanting to bring Paul safely through, kept them from their intention and commanded that those who could swim, so those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to land. And the rest should follow, some on planks and others on various things from the ship. And thus it happened that they all were brought safely to land. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you may open our eyes, the eyes of our hearts, to understand and see you in this text. Not just a storm, not just uh, dangerous waves and a ship that crashed. Lord, help us to see you and your goodness and faithfulness. And may we learn at your feet today that you are God who can be trusted. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Perhaps many of you have heard of Corrie ten Boom. She is a Dutch woman with her sister Betsy, who, because they gave uh, shelter to Jews in their home during the early years leading up to World War II, they were imprisoned in Ravensbrück, a notorious Nazi concentration camp for women. And they were being processed into the camp. And during that process, with all the other arrivals, Corey is trying to take with her three items that she considered to be absolutely precious to her. One was a vitamin bottle, another one was a blue sweater, and the last was a little compact Bible. Now you can imagine trying to hide those items and get through all of the procedure to be checked into this concentration camp was obviously quite a undertaking, but she hid them as best she could under these prison clothes that they, she was granted, and every prisoner was being patted down. As a matter of fact, the woman in front of her was being patted down three times to make sure there was nothing being smuggled in. And every, but no hand touched Corey. She made it through that checkpoint. But then there was another search point, and the women guards were searching the person in front of her, and then the one was being searched behind her, but as she approached the officer, expecting to be searched, the officer, surprisingly, shoved her and said, move along, you're holding up the line. And so, sure enough, she had with her those items as she entered into the prison camp. And she and her sister treasured that little Bible. That compact Bible became, in her words, the center of an ever-widening circle of help, an ever-widening circle of hope, as they would read that little Bible aloud, and it would be heard by those in the bunks around them in that overcrowded barracks. And here's what Corey later wrote about that particular account in, in that Bible, how, what it meant to her. She said, we were poor, we were hated, 
and we were hungry. And yet, as Betsy would read those promises from God's word, she said, rays of hope would shine into the miserable darkness of our depraved suffering. And then she quotes one of these texts that Betsy would read. She, she read, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. What a promise. And the more, she said, the more we relied on God's word, the more we gained courage to minister to the fellow prisoners and to point them to the only source of hope, Christ himself. And for those who faced what seemed a hopeless situation, they began to find more and more rays of hope. Sadly, Betsy gradually weakened, we're told, and she eventually died in Ravensbrook a short time later due to a clerical error. Corey Temboom was released. Now I want to think about what she was talking about there when she talked about the fact that this little Bible became a source of ministering to the other people around them. And that God's promises are able to shine hope. They are able to shine encouragement into the, large, into the hearts and souls and lives of people who, are, who find themselves in dark, stormy clouds that have overtaken them. It is God's word that provides firm foundation for his people. When they themselves are going through those storms and when everything else is breaking away and giving away, the scriptures will enable us to minister to other people, other people who have no assurance. They have no hope. They have no answers to the ultimate questions of life. It is at these moments when we are in these storms, the word of God and his promises can be effective in bringing hope and bringing courage to us and ministering to others. And that's exactly what was happening in the Apostle Paul's life and his experience in this storm in Acts 27. I hope you get a sense in reading through that text one more time of how dangerous it really was. It was a deadly boat trip as he's making his way from Caesarea to Rome. And Paul was used by God to convey hope to the unsaved people on that boat. As Paul did what? And this is sort of the main point of our looking at this text. Again, as we've added some previous points in previous weeks. This is point number four. As Paul relied on wholeheartedly on the sure promises of God. He was relying wholeheartedly on the sure promises of God. Think about the context of what's going on there. The situation was about as bad as it gets when you're making a trip on the seas. The captain of the ship transporting all these prisoners, all of these Roman soldiers, all of this grain from Egypt, decided that, yes, we're going to move ahead anyway. We're going to sail westward at a time of year when we know that there are these terrible stormy winds that come blowing down that make travel very unsafe, if not nearly impossible. Because they're trying to go westward, all the winds are blowing them the opposite way. And yet, here's Paul. As a passenger on that ship, he's a prisoner. He's not in charge of the deciding if they're going to go at this time or wait it out. Or, he has no control over that. He's powerless over the timing, over the sailing route, over anything. 
And the conditions on the boat must have been so miserable. Can you imagine? Violent winds making the sea so dangerous. Verse 9, verse 18, you get the sense that it's about ready to be capsized or it's about ready to be uh, pushed off into some island somewhere. It's definitely off course. And desperate attempts are now being made. When you, when you think that your ship's not going to make it, you don't care about what you're carrying any longer. It's no longer a commercial enterprise. It's just a, trying to survive. And so they're throwing things overboard to lighten the boat. They're throwing over the cargo, throwing over the uh, sailing gear. Verses 18, 19. And notice how long the storm was bearing down on that boat. Two weeks. 14 days of nonstop storm. You talk about seasickness. Nobody wants to eat. They're already thinking it's the last day of their life they're going to die. They're getting very weak. They're famished. And they would not have been able to survive had they had a shipwreck at that moment because they wouldn't have had strength to even tread water. Imminent death by drowning was on everybody's mind. The ship was about to be battered and torn, about, torn apart by these waves when it ran aground on some sort of stony shoreline in just a moment. That, that's sort of the context. Now let's look at the content of the promise that was given to Paul. Again, Paul was not in control. He's, he's not in control of the storm. He's not in control of the ship. He's just a prisoner there, a passenger on the ship. But instead, he is being, he found calmness in the middle of the storm. He found this assurance and hope in the fact that God was in control in the middle of that storm. And that God gave Paul this reliable, iron-clad pledge. Look at verse 24. Don't be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. Here's this angelic messenger giving to Paul a message from God that he's definitely going to appear before the emperor in Rome. In other words, he's going to survive the storm. And notice that's really a personal promise. He's confirming what he's already told Paul earlier assuring him that he is going to make it to Rome, and he's telling him, look, my purposes, God's purposes, are going to prevail in this storm, in this situation. He assures Paul that this was not the end of Paul's ministry. There is more to what's going on here than you can see at this moment, Paul. And he's assuring Paul that this was indeed a reminder that he was right where God wanted him to be on that ship, in that storm. And God is assuring Paul that these opportunities for ministry are going to continue on. These people on this ship, they're going to remain there. You're going to have time with them still. This is not the end of everything right here. So I call it not only a personal promise. He says, Paul, you're going to make it. I think I call it a providential promise because it had to do with what was going on right there at that moment. It says not... Because of that promise, basically Paul was being told it's not the time to collapse in some sort of fearful panic. It's not the time to sink down into self-pity and say, oh, give me a break. I, of all people, get stuck in this storm. I didn't, I didn't choose to go. We should have stayed right there. 
No, he realized again, was reminded by God, his life was in God's hands, and he would survive this dangerous storm, and God was at work. Notice that God's promise also provided reassurance that the lives of these 275 other people on that ship, they are also going to be preserved. And the storm and subsequent shipwreck are divinely appointed ministry opportunities to impact the unsaved people around him for the sake of the gospel. That was not very obvious unless he was really hanging on to this promise given to him. So let's think through now what are the consequences of believing God's promise. We saw the context, we saw the content of the promise. What are the consequences of believing God's promise? Well, after he was given the promise from God, he faced a decision. He was really at a crossroads at that moment. His choice was this, either rely on God and act accordingly and begin to minister to these people, begin to sort of take this as opportunities and trust God, or don't, don't believe in God and just see it as a, a situation which you can start complaining, you can start having an attitude, you can start just giving up and letting things happen as they would. But notice what he says in verse 25. Very clearly, he indicates which, which one of those paths he's going to walk on. Verse 25, Paul says, Keep up your courage, men, for I believe God. What does it mean to believe God if you're in a storm? Does that mean the storm all of a sudden stops? It did for the disciples one time, but it doesn't always happen that way. He says, keep up your courage, men, for I believe God. What does that mean? He believes God that it will turn out exactly as I have been told. May I say to you that faith is not some feeling that comes over you because you've heard a really impressive song over the radio. Faith is not some nod to a nebulous higher power, but Christian faith always has as its object God, the faithful, true, and covenant-keeping God. And therefore, it involves trusting someone. Faith involves having full confidence that God, in what he promises, he's able also to perform what he said he would do. Romans 4, that's what Abraham did. Faith is being fully assured that the God who makes the promise to us is fully reliable and he will fulfill his promises. In your notes, I've given you the quote by Paul Washer. He's very helpful. He points out that God is worthy of absolute trust. God's people can depend upon him without doubt and without reservation. That's what Paul was doing. God is faithful, not because he does everything his people desire, but because he does all he has promised. Another author puts it this way, God cannot tell a fib. God cannot lie. The word of God is the surest thing in the universe. If God says something, there is no risk in believing it. We are foolish not to believe his promises, his word. So, 
Paul, when it comes to believing God, he doesn't doubt him. And so he speaks into the lives of those people around him. He speaks with courage. He speaks with conviction. He speaks with composure in the middle of this huge storm. He's able to be strong in the midst of the situation where most of the people around him on board were gripped with fear, gripped with panic, gripped with terror and confusion. It's Paul who has a a calmness of heart. It's amazing to see the way he's responding as he trusts God. And the outward fruit of Paul's full reliance on God's promise was the fact that these people on this boat had the opportunity to see and to witness firsthand a godly influence upon them. Here's a person trusting God. Here's a person who is acting on their faith. And so his words of encouragement conveys all this wisdom, all this calming reassurance to the people around him. He told them to eat some food so they'd have strength, so they would survive the shipwreck. And his confidence in God's promise provided all these unbelievers around him an example of this inner stability the fact that he, is, he has peace in the midst of what seems like chaos and disaster. He exuded calm confidence in God as he spoke to the fears of the people around him. Verses 34, verse 25, 26. It's not a surprise because there were those on that ship who were doubting what Paul said. They were like, oh yeah, sure, right Paul. You get these messages from God, huh? And so they were ready to make their own exit strategy. They had apparently some sort of uh, dinghy or some sort of little tiny boat that's attached to that boat so they can go ashore because you can't always get a big ship close to the shore. You have to have a smaller one that doesn't sink down so deep in the water. So they're, they're going to uh, bail out on that little thing, venture out on their own. And Paul took steps to preserve the lives of every single person on that ship and says, uh-uh, don't do that. You're not going to survive. And probably they wouldn't, because what? A little tiny ship and those kind of waves? Forget it. You're going to get tossed over in a matter of seconds. Now let's bring this down to the practical level where you and I live. Let's talk about claiming God's promises. What does it mean to claim God's promises? Let me first of all just remind you, everybody who was on that boat along with Paul whether they were believers or whether they were unbelievers, every single person went through that storm. And so don't hear me say, when we're looking through this text, and don't hear me thinking that somehow we can glean from this, that somehow we're going to be spared storms if we have faith in God. That's not what we're learning here at all. What we're saying is that all of us go through our own storms. We should expect that. That's what life in this world is is like. None of us are immune or somehow preserved from trials and troubles. Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation. He's predicting it. He's telling him. You're going to have this. John 16, by the way. So all of us, and there are no exceptions, all of us have faced, are facing, and will face storms of suffering. There will be these gale force winds of affliction that are going to come into your life. The question is, where's your faith at those moments? Are you relying on yourself? Are you relying on other people? Or are you relying on Christ? When you come into those problems and situations, are you 
filled with panic more so than you are faith? Are you filled with fear more than faith? Do you find that sometimes you, you just swept off your feet with thoughts and feelings of despair and you think, well, God, you must have abandoned me. Do you assume that somehow you're on your own? You have to fend for yourself. May I remind you of that great text in Psalm, verse, Psalm chapter 46, where it says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. What does the next thing say? Therefore, we will not fear. If we believe that God is a refuge, if we believe that God is a very present help in time of trouble, therefore we're not going to be completely overwhelmed with fear and panic when we're in the storms. God is faithful. That's what I'm trying to glean from this text. That's what I believe Paul was counting on. That's why Paul was relying on what this promise came to him, because God is faithful. He does not lie. You read 1 Corinthians 1, verse 9, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, very clearly, repeatedly, God is faithful. His word is true. His promises are always fully reliable in the darkest of storms that you and I go through. God has given us a treasure trove of promises. We read in Romans 15, verse 4, this interesting comment that Paul makes knowing that the scriptures they had at the time, which was the Hebrew scriptures, he says, whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. So he's talking about all the Hebrew scriptures. We are to be instructed by those. What does he mean by that? That through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures. It is in the scriptures that we find encouragement in the midst of storms of life. In the encouragement of scriptures, we might have and find hope. That's Romans 15, 4. So here's a captain of the boat that Paul's in. What does he do? In the midst of his storm, he does what? He's trying to find, and he did a couple times, he tried to make his way into a calm harbor. That's what most smart captains of boats would do. You go into a harbor where the winds are less, there's not as many waves, and you find your secure mooring, you, you, you anchor up or tie up to something that isn't going to move, and you ride out the storm. In life, the best way to ride out the storms of life is to trust God, is to claim His promises, is to fill your mind with His promises, is to remind yourself of who God is in the midst of that storm and what He's promised for you. And we do that by fully relying upon what he has said, because we are absolutely confident that he is faithful. He's not going to go back on his word. I'll tell you a story about uh, an incident on our honeymoon with Joyce and I. This is in 1980. This has been some years ago. And uh, we were um, in Norfolk, Virginia. And uh, there's a huge harbor there. It's all sorts of Navy uh, hub there. They, make, they repair ships there, shipyards all over the place. It's a very interesting harbor. Anyway, we took this tour on a boat tour of the harbor there in the Tidewater, Virginia area. And we boarded the boat in the late afternoon, sun shining, 
winds are calm, it's a gorgeous day, and we're looking forward to getting after the, the, uh, the tour, then we're going to go out to eat. So that was the plan. So about 30 minutes into it, maybe 45 minutes into the tour, and he's pointed out all these big ships and whatever, you can just tell the skies are just black. It's just a huge storm is coming on. The winds are picking up. The Here comes a squall. I think that's what it was because the, the rain is, is, uh, vert, is horizontal. You know, it's being blown into the boat like this. Everybody's coming inside the glass part of it instead of being on top. Uh, it, it's just awful storm. And the captain of the boat drove the boat over to an empty pier, nowhere near where we started, in the middle of nowhere in, in this, I mean, there's just, it's like an abandoned pier. And so he's got the deckhand out there with his raincoat on, and he's trying to hold on for dear life. And there's, you know, we're just rocking around like this. And he throws one of these massive ropes onto this pier, this dock. And uh, then he's trying to gun the engines and push the boat up against the pier. So we won't be rocking all over the place and, and just remain up against it. And the rope snaps. So everybody's really panicking, thinking, oh, no, now what's going to happen? And so he's, the guy's out there in his raincoat. He's got, he gets another rope, throws it on there, lassos it on there, and that one snaps. So we're all thinking, oh, boy, this is going to be that three-hour tour, you know, that you read about that's never going to end. Anyway, the third one did finally hold on, and we made it through the storm, and they gave you a coupon saying, if you ever come back, we'll get a free tour on that boat in the future. Now, when I think about that, I think about the fact that what? Our rope of faith at times will snap. Sometimes we just don't have very strong faith. But let me tell you, my friends, God is 100% reliable. God's promises are sure and they are solid. They stand indestructibly through the worst of storms. The question is, are we availing ourselves of those promises? Have we put them in our hearts and in our minds? Do we take God at his word? Do we hold on to those promises? Do we use them to get us out of the, the, the uh, bad places of heart in which we find ourselves at times, discouraged, uh, afraid, anxious, ready to give up? And I want to conclude with this story about John Bunyan. John Bunyan, as you know, is one of the Puritan pastors who spent not just a year or two, he spent 12 years in prison in England merely for, for being unwilling to stop preaching. And so he remained all, that, all those years in prison, unable to provide for his family. And during his imprisonment, he wrote the classic book, Pilgrim's Progress. And at one point, Bunyan describes... Christian, who is the lead character, and he is encountering what is described as the great despair. And in this great despair, he is now languishing into this dungeon. He's locked into this dark, dingy dungeon, and at that point, Christian is so discouraged, he is so overwhelmed, he just thinks, oh no, I'll never get out of here, and this is the end, and what's the use, and where is God, and why am I here, and all these things. And then after a while, Christian was surprised when he realized that in his pocket, there was a key. And so he pulls the key out and he says, huh, let's try this in this big massive door that's been holding me in here. 
takes the key, puts it in, it fits in the door. He turns it, and sure enough, the door comes open. And he makes his way out of this great despair by using the key that he had been given when he became a believer. What's the point here? Of course, the key represents the promises of God. It's the key that he had been neglecting to use. He had been forgetting to remember the promises that God had given. And so he felt like he has forgotten there. And, and every time when he came to any other situation in which he was stuck and felt like he was enclosed in some sort of prison, he would pull out that key and know full, he got out every single time when he pulled the key open. And the point is here, in life we need to repeatedly pull out the key we have been given by God. The key are the promises of God. What's your promise that you're holding on to? For me, it's been forever, <clears throat> for so long it seems like, Isaiah 41.10. I'll say, Mark, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, I am your God. I will strengthen you, I'll help you, I'll hold you with my righteous right hand. Boy, I take that promise and I have to use it like a key to get me out of the worried mindset that I have late at night <clears throat> when I wonder where, what in the world's going to happen. I urge you to consider at some point, my friends, I didn't bring the book with me, but there's a book by John Piper called Future Grace. He takes all sorts of scenarios and situations in life, I would call it the storms of life, and he takes and reminds us, God has grace for you that's not only for now, but in the future. And you can rely on the promises that God gives us, and he will help you through those situations, but you've got to what? You've got to use that key. And so today I want to ask, what storm are you in? Who are you relying on? What is your hope? Could it be that God wants you to hold on to those promises so that you can be used of God to minister to the other people around you? That you can show them what faith looks like? That you can be joyous in the midst of disappointment and sorrow and loss? That you can be a person who is hanging on to what God says and trusting him because you know this is not the end. God's still at work. God has things he's doing you can't fully know. And so therefore your confidence is in God. And therefore you're able to say, you know, I don't understand it all, but I know God's with me. What a difference that makes to, in opportunities to minister to other people. Let's pray that God will help us to trust him as a faithful and true God. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you never distort the truth. You are a faithful God. Never ever will you deceive your children. Never ever will you renege on your promises. Help us, we pray, to be a people who fully trust you. Our faith may be weak, but Lord, help us to use those keys you gave us. Help us to get out of the prison that hinders us from being able to be used effectively in the lives of other people because we're oftentimes filled with self-pity or fear or doubt or discouragement and we sort of become sidetracked with what we're called to be doing. And so, Father, we pray that you would glorify yourself by increasing our faith. And if there's someone here today, Lord, who wonders if they themselves could ever know that they could be accepted by you, and wonder if there's truly enough grace for them to get past all their sins when it comes to being accountable to you someday. Lord, would you show them the promises of Calvary?
that to whoever believes on the Lord Jesus Christ, they shall be saved. So Lord, show us again, we pray, the glories of your promises that we receive through Christ in his life and death and resurrection from the dead. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing a great hymn that speaks of God's precious promises. Let's stand together as we prepare to come to the Lord's table. <clears throat>